Well, our world is filled with natural wonders. We have one pretty close to us in Yosemite National Park. First time I visited Yosemite was when I was in college. And in college, you have the freedom to be spontaneous. And so one day, a group of friends just said, why don't we go to drive to Yosemite for a day trip? And the answer, you know, the question was, why would I do that? And the answer is, why not? We got nothing else to do. It's only three hours away. So with zero planning, zero preparation, we didn't really actually know what Yosemite was. But we just hopped in the car, off we went for a day trip. The first time you see a natural wonder like that, it, it takes you back. We call them wonders because that's the response they evoke from us. Wonder, awe, amazement. That's how God programmed us to respond to greatness. But at the same time, we can be often distracted by lesser things. How would you respond if you had some family friends, they went on a trip to see the Grand Canyon? And then you learn that the kids, they just played on their phones the whole time. They never even got out of the car to look around. They just stayed in the car, played on their phones the whole time. You would want to like shake them. You'd want to wake them up from their self-obsession. But at times, we can be no different. The greatness of creation points to an even greater creator. We're meant to sit in awe of him. And Christians especially are meant to wonder at God and worship. But we too can be so distracted ultimately because we can be self-obsessed. People can get so caught up in self, in their needs, their desires, their troubles, that they never see God. Such people can go to church. They can read the Bible. But they're so consumed with self that they're never awestruck by God himself. And such self-obsession is typically reflected in how people pray. And for some people, they pray, but their prayers lack reverence. They show up at God's house only when they need something. God is less the eternal creator of the universe and more like a cosmic ATM. God exists for them to make, to make their life better, right? So they pray for what they want. And when their prayers aren't answered, when they don't get everything they want, God must be to blame. He's not good. This is the height of folly. It deserves Job's rebuke. I mean, do you, do you even know the God to whom you're speaking? Do you recognize that when you pray, you're stepping into his throne room? Sometimes you might do better just to cover your mouth and not say anything, but just to sit and to wonder and to worship. We desperately need to have a higher view of God. That's what's going to lead us to have a higher view of worship. That includes prayer, because after all, what is prayer but praise? This is how the Lord Jesus leads us to pray as he teaches us to pray in our passage for this morning. So we return to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. You can take your Bibles, open them there if you want to follow along. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has a lot to say about prayer. Prayer, you might call it a spiritual discipline. It's of supreme value to the Lord. But you have to get it right. Many back then had prayer quite wrong. And Jesus, he's writing, he's teaching to correct them. He doesn't want his disciples to pray in vain. So back in verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 6, he leads us to put off the wrong motive of prayer. Don't, Don't pray just to be seen by others. Prayer done as like a performance of self-righteousness is entirely worthless to God. And then in verses 7 and 8, he leads us to put off the wrong manner of prayer. Don't pray just using meaningless repetition. And prayer is not meant to be mindless. It's not about repeating the same words over and over again. Now, both your heart and your mind must be fully engaged when you're approaching God above. Now, after that, verses 9 through 13, he he flips it and shows us the positive side of that, the, the right manner of prayer. How then are we to pray? How should we approach God in heaven with our prayers? He tells us in what's often called the Lord's Prayer. This was a model prayer meant to guide his disciples in how they ought to pray. Of course, we, we, we looked at last time how it's quite sad and ironic how so many people have turned this prayer into a rote prayer that is repeated mindlessly over and over again. Something which Jesus just said not to do. But no, this is a prayer. It's a model meant to guide us on the principles and priorities of prayer that is pleasing to God. 
So with that in mind, let's, let's read this again. Let's read the passage again, which gives us the Lord's Prayer. Let's be reminded of this model. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Where Jesus says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, last week we covered the big picture of this prayer, paying special attention to the object of the prayer, where it's, it's not just God, it's, as Jesus says, our Father who is in heaven. Some deliberate wording with this special address, Jesus helps us approach God rightly, carefully balancing both his imminence as our Father who is near with his transcendence. He's God. He's still exalted in heaven. So we need to approach God rightly, our Father who is in heaven. Now, after the address, Jesus models prayer for us with six petitions. And it's especially instructive to observe how Jesus begins Not with supplication where you're making your requests, but he begins this prayer with adoration. As we pointed out to Jesus, prayer is first a means of communing with God. So when you enter his presence, your your first thoughts should be praise. Your first request should be centered on his glory. God being transcendent and exalted is worthy of our worship. So, the first thing that should come off our lips should be praise. Now, God is also imminent. He is our father. He's, he's concerned with our needs, however small they might be, because he does care for us. And so Jesus will lead us to present our supplications before God, to make our requests with a little bit of confession mixed in there. That's the second half of the Lord's Prayer. We'll, we'll get to that. But the first half is all about God and That's what we're going to start with. We need to learn prayer first as as praise, as adoration. Now, with our limited time today being a a communion Sunday, we're just going to pick on the first two petitions. These six petitions, they also split nicely into couplets. And that's how we'll take them. It affords us the time we need to dive in. Because these words are brief and concise. But this model prayer is so dense with meaning. And we just learned we have to pray this or we have to pray in this manner with meaning. We can't pray this mindlessly devoid of meaning, yet so many people do. Our minds must be filled with truth that will trickle down and awaken our hearts. And when your heart is full, it's going to burst out of your lips in prayer and praise. We need to get this right. So to get started, our big picture goal, it's the same here in these past and upcoming few weeks, just to learn how to pray. To learn how to pray from the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to cover the first two petitions this morning. So the first is, hallowed be your name. Verse 9, hallowed be your name. Let's cover that. This first petition is so important because it sets the tone and the direction for the rest. It's well known. Everybody knows the Lord's Prayer starts this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your memorization might taper after that, but I'm sure you got the first line down. But how well does everyone understand the first line? I mean, we just spent all this time from the Lord arguing that you can't, you're not meant to pray this mindlessly over and over again, where it's devoid of meaning. How many people repeat these words without actually knowing what they mean? Do you know what we're praying when we say, hallowed be your name? Well, first, we need to define what hallowed means. And that's really the problem here. We've got this old English word that has completely fallen out of our vocabulary. I'm sure you never use that word in any other context than the Lord's Prayer. But because of tradition, it's still preserved in the Lord's Prayer. The uh, King James Version of the English Bible translated this Greek phrase, hallowed. That's an old English term. Back in the 1600s, everybody knew what that meant. That is no longer the case. But since the Lord's Prayer, it's revered, it's cherished, it's etched in stone. Later translators were reluctant to update the wording, even though we don't use this word anymore. So just about every modern English translation still has, hallowed be your name. 
It's like clay that's been left out in the sun. This term has just been baked into Christian vernacular, hallowed. And there are a couple of translations I found that broke with tradition and opted for more helpful wording. The Holman Christian Standard Bible reads, Your name be honored as holy. And the Net Bible reads, May your name be honored. And both are good translations of the underlying Greek word hagiadzo. And that it's thankfully it's simple. It just means to make holy, to sanctify something, to set something apart. When we're praying, hallowed be your name, we're we're praying a prayer of of making something holy, setting something apart. And in this uh, petition, what is being set apart? God's name. Hallowed be your name. This is a prayer that God's name would be sanctified or treated as holy. Now, it's noteworthy that Jesus doesn't just say, hallowed be God. Hallowed be you. He says, hallowed be your name. He picks on the name. Of God, which leads us to ask, okay, what, what is behind God's name? What is God's name? What, what does God's name signify? And culturally today, names carry little meaning. Names are just like titles that distinguish one person from another. And parents typically name their kids quite subjectively. There's not meaning behind it. It's just, I like the sound of it. And that's fine, but that is not the case for biblical names. Most often in the ancient Near East, names carried great meaning. Sometimes names were derived from the circumstances of one's birth, like Jacob and Esau. Other times names were given to reflect someone's character or role, which is why sometimes people were renamed. Often they were renamed. Didn't God rename Abram to Abraham, which means the father of many nations? That's what God would do through Abraham. Biblically, names often indicated something essential about a person. I'll say that again. Biblically, names often indicated something essential about a person. And it is the same with God when it comes to his revealed name. His name reveals and says something essential about him. So what is the name of God? What does it signify? Well, for that, we've got to turn to a key passage in Exodus 3 so you can Keep a finger in Matthew 6. Go back to Exodus 3 to follow along. Now, while you're turning, though, I want to tell you what is not God's name. Jehovah. In fact, Jehovah is not a name of God at all. So, sorry to the Jehovah's Witnesses. They they base their whole movement on an inaccurate name of God. I will explain. Now, the proper name of God revealed in Hebrew is Yahweh. That's in the Hebrew Bible. You get the name Yahweh that God revealed. Over time, though, in tradition, the Jews stopped pronouncing the name Yahweh, believing it was too sacred. We can't say it. And so when they're reading the scriptures and they came across the word Yahweh, they wouldn't say Yahweh. They would instead substitute the word for Lord, which was Adonai. And later in copies of the Old Testament, They would actually write the word Yahweh, but they would take the vowel pointings, that's what they're called, the vowels of the Hebrew word Adonai, and add them to the word Yahweh as an indicator, a reminder that when you get to this word, don't read Yahweh, you're meant to say Adonai. There's a little reminder for them. But you know, after time, more people, they just started reading and pronouncing the word Yahweh with the vowels to Adonai, as if that was the name of God. And so what word do you get when you read Yahweh with the vowels to Adonai in the Hebrew? You get Yehovah in ancient Hebrew or Jehovah in modern Hebrew. This started around the 12th century AD. And so Jehovah is just a historical convention. It's not actually a name of God. The real proper name of God is Yahweh, which is why that's all we use. And God God himself revealed that name in Exodus chapter 3. Here, uh, God is commissioning Moses to deliver the people from Egypt. What does he say? It's a familiar passage. Let's just read it through Exodus three thirteen through 15. He says, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, doesn't say Lord. When you see Lord in all caps, chances are your Bible, it's all caps. That's indicating the word is Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. And so here God reveals his memorial name, his special covenant name by which he's known among his people. The nations know him as God. Uh, His people know him as Yahweh. Now, Yahweh itself is a play on words of the Hebrew verb to be or I am. In Hebrew, it's Hayah. Yahweh is the great I am. He's the God who always was, always is, always will be. And so you can see how this name, Yahweh, captures both the transcendence and imminence of God, as we learned last week. It's a name of total supremacy. I mean, God is the self-existent one already that makes him unlike us. Yet this, this is a personal name. This is a covenant name by which he wants to be known among his people. This God has entered into a saving relationship with us. And he wants us to call on him by this name. So it's just like Joshua said, Joshua 24, verse 15. He told the people, choose today whom you will serve, whether the gods beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites. But then he said, but as for me and my household, we will serve Yahweh. It doesn't say the Lord. It says Yahweh. That's just your translation. It's all caps. We will serve Yahweh. That's his name. Or like Elijah said in 1 Kings 18, 21, he said, if, if Yahweh is God, follow him. Or if Baal is God, follow him. But of course, we know there's only one God in heaven. His name is Yahweh. Okay, so back to Matthew 6. When Jesus leads us to pray, hallowed be your name, this surely is the name he has in mind. It is the covenant name of God, which represents God's essential character, his perfections. This is who God is. Now, you might wonder, though, if that's the case, like, why are we praying this? Why do, why do we need to pray this? Isn't God's name already hallowed? Right? God, God's name, it's already holy. He's already set apart and supreme. Why do we need to pray this? Well, it is true. God's name is most holy. God and his name are objectively holy. Uh, but in this fallen world, God's name is not always regarded as holy. It's not always treated as holy. People more often profane the name of God. That's the opposite of hallowed, is to profane. And people take God's name in vain. People use God's name as a swear word. People sometimes outright just malign the name of God. In heaven, God's name is perfectly hallowed, but on earth, not so much. And so down in verse 10, Jesus will lead us to pray the familiar prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You could say the same thing about God's name. Hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying. And so this is a prayer for God's name to be treated and honored as holy everywhere under heaven. That all people would revere God and give him the honor that is due his name. Now, thankfully, you can be certain God will one day answer this prayer. He himself will vindicate the honor of his name. Listen to Ezekiel 36, verse 23, where God says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. God will answer that prayer. Until then, though, this this is our prayer. Hallowed be your name. This expresses our recognition That God's name is holy. This expresses our longing for others to regard his name as holy. And you should be able to see by now, though, how this first prayer that Jesus leads us in is is ultimately an expression of adoration. This, This is worship. This is a prayer expressing what should be our heart's desire that, that the one true God would be honored as holy among all and most certainly in our own lives. That we too would seek to honor him as holy. 
And with this, Jesus, he's showing us how to lead off in prayer. You're meant to start with adoration, with praise. I mean, how would you like it if your kids only called you when they needed something? Or if your little kids just barged into your room with a list of demands. And that's it. You'd feel disrespected, undervalued. How do you think God feels? Now, as we approach the door of his throne room in prayer, we're meant to see the name on the door. And that should strike a little reverence into us. Maybe a lot of reverence into us. Immediately reminding us of the majesty of the self-existent one who's allowed us to come in and to speak with him. I mean, his name should strike us with awe. And, and that, the response to that demands expression. Demands expression before you bring your requests and pleas to him. And this is what you must do when you pray. You first need to recall to whom you are speaking. Read the name on the door and then let that govern what comes out of your lips next. Let that recognition then just pour forth in in some words of adoration or praise. I think part of the great value of this first petition in the Lord's Prayer is calibration. You know, car wheels over time move and shift. They're not always pointed straight. So they periodically need to be aligned or calibrated to make sure you're driving straight. We too need some calibration, I'd say pretty often in our hearts to make sure our lives are pointed straight at the Lord. Because I don't know about you, but it's too easy to become self-focused, self-obsessed, self-centered. I mean, we're all scrambling around in this rat race of life. And we don't have time just to look up and remember God in heaven. We're way too busy for that. But look, to pray this prayer with meaning, hallowed be your name. It it both exalts God and it, it calibrates us. It recalibrates us. When you follow Christ's prayer and you or when you follow his lead and begin prayer with adoration, you, you, you dwell on God. You gain a little vision of God's glory, so to speak. And the closer you get to God's glory and seeing him, the more that self-obsession just kind of melts away. It's like holding a little tea candle next to the sun. Only the sun remains. And you start to realize that this, this life, I think it's about God. I think it's about his name, not my name, his name. The recognition of his name. Because after all, you cannot hallow God's name and your own name at the same time. You got to pick a name and worship accordingly. You're only going to worship either God or yourself. You must choose today whom you will serve. But this prayer calibrates us to the true worship of the true God. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones called this recollection. This is how you have to start off in prayer. In, in prayer, we don't empty our minds like Eastern monks. We, we fill our minds with the truth. That's what guides us. We recall who God is, what he has done. And that, that ensures that our prayers will be truly directed heavenward. Listen to a quote from Jones. He says this, quote, talking about prayer. I know the difficulty of this. We are but human. We're pressed by the urgency of our position, the cares, the anxieties, the troubles, the anguish of the mind, the bleeding heart, whatever it is. And we're so full of this that like children, we start speaking at once. But if you want to make contact with God, and if you want to feel his everlasting arms about you, put your hand on your mouth for a moment. Recollection, just stop for a moment and remind yourself of what you are about to do. End quote. I think a lot of people cross a few wires and they get prayer wrong. I mean, they pray, but then they get discouraged. Why? Because, because the prayers aren't answered the way they want. I mean, I, I didn't get what I asked for. My loved one wasn't healed. I didn't get that job promotion. But if you were to inquire further, you might find that their whole approach to prayer is wrong. It's not wrong for you to let your requests be made known to God. We're going to learn a lot about that. But some people, they become dangerously self-obsessed. And you might wonder, like, where, where is God in their prayers? Where's, where's the worship? Where's the adoration? Where's the recognition of the one whom, to whom you are speaking with? Where's the sense of wonder 
and the resulting worship. God's glory was the first thing that came to Christ's mind when he prayed. And so it should be the first thing that comes to our mind when we pray. And that the holy honor of God's name deserves further expression in praise. Again, right? Prayer and praise, they just blend together. Where does one ocean end and another ocean begin on the map? I don't know. It's water. It just kind of blends together. And so does prayer and praise. But if you want to have a picture of it, just, just read the Psalms. Look to the psalmist. They, they had it figured out what it looks like to express prayer and praise at the same time. How to further hallow God's name. You recall God's works in creation and redemption. You reflect on his character and perfections. And then you just, you just try to put to words the wonder that results. There's a song we've been singing lately that's so wonderful because the lyrics are just the words of Psalm 34, verse 3, which says, Oh, magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt his name together. That's something we should be singing slash praying all the time. So we all need to be constantly recalibrated in prayer. We need to be trained to, to, to praise God first, to think of God first. Let us adore him. Let us magnify his name together. Learn from Christ how to pray. To pray, hallowed be God's name. We're learning from Christ how to pray in this passage. He, he teaches us to start with an expression of adoration. And guess what? That, that continues. He doesn't change course so quickly. The focus on God's glory needs to continue. And so adoration carries on with the second petition. We want to add in one more for our time this morning. So let's now bring in uh, the second petition to explore your kingdom come. This is how he leads us to start in prayer. Your, uh, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And you can see how this second petition of adoration is related because God's name is honored when his rule becomes more evident. But I would say this too is prayed by many without much understanding. Do you know what you're praying for when you say your kingdom come? Like we've been saying, our starting point has to be getting the meaning right of Christ's words, this model prayer, that we then can translate it into our prayer with meaning, with heart. Now here, that all centers on understanding God's kingdom, the kingdom. What is this kingdom? The kingdom of God is not a thing per se. It's, it's not a plot of land. It's not a building. Rather, the kingdom of God can be very simply defined as the exercise of God's rule over his creation. Very simple. The exercise of God's rule over his creation. God is the king. The world is his domain. We're the subjects. His rule extends over all. But right now, God is not ruling in full. I have to explain that. And just as we learned, God's name, it's already holy, but it's not recognized as holy among the nations. Well, likewise, God is enthroned. He has all authority. He possesses it, but he's not regarded as the sovereign king by all the earth and his authority is not being exercised in full on the earth. Instead, right now you see another kingdom reigning on the earth, kingdom of darkness. This world is under the domain of sin and Satan and death, all of which subvert the rule of God, all of which are against the revealed will of God. Now, of course we know even this was part of God's greater plan for his greater glory. In the biggest sense, God is sovereign. He's only ever fully in control. We know that. He's only ever fully in control of all things. He is the sovereign. But functionally, here below in this creation, he allowed for his rule to be subverted by sin, Satan, and death. He allowed Satan to rebel. He allowed Adam and Eve to fall. He ordained it. Now, sin, Satan, and death reign on the earth. But after the fall, God was not scrambling for a plan. He put into practice his predetermined plan 
already promising a savior who would come to reclaim this world for God's reign. This is a plan that would enable God to put on display his mercy and his justice, his grace and his wrath, all of his perfections. The scripture reveals to us this kingdom plan, the means by which God will reestablish his rule over this planet. And this is a progressive plan. It's progressively revealed. And many people go wrong that they try and fit this concept of the kingdom of God into one mold. As if it's like one size fits all in every era. That's not the case. Now God's rule over his creation has been expressed in many different ever increasing ways throughout biblical history. So for example, you have the, the past expression of God's kingdom rule in Israel. Right? Israel was the people of the old covenant. They were called by God's name. They were given God's law to rule them. Israel was not the full and final expression of the kingdom of God, but at the time, that's where God's rule was found. Now, that rule was not complete because it it did not extend over all the nations. It didn't even extend over all the hearts of his people. So God brought about a greater expression of his kingdom rule. That leads us to the present expression of the kingdom of God in the church. The church is the new covenant people of God called by the name of Christ, ruled by the law of Christ. Even further, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're granted new hearts to worship, enabling them to actually live under God's rule. And so the church now we can say is the latest and greatest expression of God's kingdom. Is it the full and final expression? No, it's not. But it is the latest and greatest And right now, God's rule extends into the hearts of his own people. And so it's like Jesus said in Luke 17, 21, he said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom has drawn near in the presence of the king and his first coming and his salvation. This kingdom is now meant to grow and expand on the earth as the church brings the gospel into the nations and more people come under the lordship of Christ through salvation. But that being said, there is still a distinct future expression of the kingdom of God. That's where God reigns, not just over the hearts of his people, but his reign extends over all the nations and even over all creation. This is the consistent future expectation of the scriptures. They anticipate a time when when God's kingdom rule is truly over all the earth. The curse is lifted. The nations submit all of them, to the lordship of Christ. That's that's certainly not happening right now, but scripture looks forward to when that time will come. And it happens when? When Christ returns. It's consistently the expectation of Christ's return, the fullness of the kingdom or the exercise of God's rule over his creation. That comes when the king returns. And It is that future dimension of the kingdom that's behind the Lord's prayer. So back to, again, Matthew 6, verse 10, your kingdom come. This prayer is not primarily evangelistic, but eschatological, meaning it has its sights set on the future expression of the kingdom. You can't confuse the inauguration of the kingdom with the continuation of the kingdom with the consummation of the kingdom. Remember, Acts 2.23 said it was the predetermined plan. Acts 2.23, the predetermined plan of God for Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins. And then God raised him from the dead. This is all part of the plan. So it's God's plan, his means to restore his rightful rule over this world. And after King Jesus finished his work, he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, having received all authority, where? in heaven and on earth. Like Jesus, as the risen king right now, possesses all authority over the earth. That authority is fully possessed, but even still, it's not fully expressed. Christ's lordship now can be found in the church, but not yet in all the nations or in creation. This world still exists in the domain of darkness. As the gospel spreads, individuals are transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ, 
Colossians 1.13. But the domain of Satan remains. The curse still reigns. It's not until Christ returns when that changes. Satan is bound. The curse is lifted. And the lordship of Christ is exerted, expressed over the whole planet. And so the Lord's prayer then, what we're praying, it really anticipates the return of the king. That's when his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven in full. This finds its fulfillment in a future millennial kingdom when Christ reigns. After which Jesus will hand the kingdom over to the father. Sin, Satan, and death will be banished forevermore. Jesus will usher in the eternal state, the final expression of God's kingdom rule, where uh, our enemies are banished once for all, and God's rule is perfected in a new heavens and a new earth. But the end of this story all begins when Christ returns. And that's why this is the consistent hope of the New Testament. For example, Titus 2.13 says we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. When Jesus comes, his kingdom will come in its fuller expression. Christ himself looked forward to that day. He says this in Luke 22, 18. And Christ told his disciples before the cross, he said, I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on, Until the kingdom of God comes. Talking about that last supper, that Passover communion meal. He'll drink it again only when the kingdom of God comes. Now see that that word comes. Until the kingdom of God comes. That word for that is erkomai in the Greek. It's the same word used in the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come. Erkomai. It means to arrive. To just to show up. And being an aorist active imperative, it's talking about the sudden instantaneous arrival of that future kingdom. It shows up. Just like Jesus said, Matthew 24, 27. He said, just as lightning comes from the east, comes, erkomai, same word. Just as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, even so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Right now, the church has the mission to to spread the kingdom rule of God over the nations through conversion, where God is reigning over more and more hearts as people are brought to Christ. And look, other parables speak of the the growth and the spread of the kingdom, and that is our present mission to, to take the gospel to the nations. But again, you can't confuse the growth of the kingdom with the consummation. Never is it the church's mission to usher in the consummation. We're waiting for Jesus to do that when he returns. And so again, this prayer, your kingdom come is eschatological. It's not evangelistic. It's up to Jesus to bring in the the next greatest expression of his rule. And this is why in the New Testament, this is something we're waiting for. We're longing for, we're hoping in to come. The Lord's prayer, you'll notice it's a call on God to take action, not us. We're praying that God would bring this kingdom. This kingdom, which is, after all, our inheritance. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. We inherit this kingdom by his grace. So really, you put all this together. And in the end, this prayer, your kingdom come, it's not all that different from the earliest prayer of the early church, which is found captured in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. It's simply the prayer, Maranatha. Maranatha which means, oh Lord, come. Come, Lord. That was an early prayer of the church. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul just says, and it's in your Bible as Maranatha. It's an Aramaic expression that Paul himself did not feel the need to translate for his Greek-speaking audience. They did not know Aramaic, but he didn't translate it, indicating that they knew what it meant because this was a well-known early prayer of the church. They would just pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Really, isn't that the same prayer with which the whole Bible ends? Right? Like the last verses of the whole Bible. Revelation 22, verse 20. It says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. And then John writes, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Erkomai, Lord Jesus. This is our longing for Jesus to come back 
and, and bring an end to the rule of sin and Satan and death on the planet once for all. As Peter says in 2 Peter 3.12, we're looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That is the day when all the promises of the Beatitudes get fulfilled. By the way, did you forget about the Beatitudes? How the Sermon on the Mount began. We go back to Matthew 5 where Jesus promises this blessing on his disciples. And they're all true now in part. Matthew 5 verse 3. Talking about the blessed ones. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, they shall be comforted. Verse 5, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, they shall be satisfied. Verse 7, they shall receive mercy. Verse 8, they shall see God. Verse 9, they shall be called sons of God. Verse 10, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All these blessings, they are true now in part. But they will be fulfilled and seen in full when Christ returns. And so we should certainly pray this prayer with meaning with our own expectation. The longer you live, the more you, you, you see the effects of sin and Satan and death in your own life. How many people do you know, loved ones, who have died? That's not right. It's part of a curse on this world. How much has sin caused trouble in your own life? How many relationships have you had broken? Maybe some even your fault by your own sin. How many schemes of the devil have you seen divide churches and bring ruin? There's so many things still wrong even now in this world. And so we pray. Your, your kingdom come. Come quickly. Can you, can you hurry it up? We would pray. But we submit to his timing and just let our hearts be known, praying with meaning for Christ, the king to return. It's his work to complete. Hopefully, this gives you just a better understanding of these prayers this morning, that you can pray with meaning. You can make these your prayers that you infuse with your heart of worship as you seek to adore God's name and long for his kingdom reign on this earth. This should be our desire, that that God's name would be honored among all the people in our lives, all the nations. Think about all your friends and family who don't honor God's name. Don't, Don't you want that? Isn't that your heart's desire? If you know him, it should be. Don't you want all the nations, all people you know, to to submit to the, the, the good lordship of Christ? Thankfully, we again know that the Lord will fulfill this promise. He will answer this prayer. He will return. As a final thought, though, that being the case, we can ask again, like, why does Jesus want us to pray this? If it's up to God to bring about these promises, these prayers. And if we know he's going to, like, why do we really need to pray that? Well, first, don't forget, prayer is primarily praise. I mean, we're praying these things foremost to adore God. <clears throat> and you do that by expressing your heart, which, again, hopefully desires his name to be honored among all and his rule to extend over all. And as, you, as you're trusting him <clears throat> and crying out to him to bring this about, you are exalting him. That, that is worship that pleases him. So we pray these prayers first as praise. But I also want to point out second, that God himself designed prayer to change us. Prayer does not change God. It changes us. Something we'll learn next week. But already the Lord teaches us to pray that we might be changed. Here's a preview of how that works. <clears throat> the Lord wants you to pray this. Following this form with meaning, he uses the words, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. If you pray that, if you make that your own prayer with your heart behind it, and if you're born again, you know what's going to happen is the Spirit is going to convict you. Convict you of what? Of your sin and your hypocrisy. I mean, you're praying for God's name to be honored among all. How much do you honor God's name in your own life? You're praying for God's kingdom reign to rule over all. How much do you submit to the reign of God in your own life? Do you think God is pleased by your lip service if your lives don't even show regard for his name and his kingdom? We're going to be convicted. But like, wait a second. Who among us here fully lives for God's name and God's kingdom every moment of every day? Right? Who here is without sin? All sin dishonors God's name and subverts his rule. Even as believers who here among us is without sin. 
Now, even though we in the church confess Christ as Lord and we bear his name as Christians, to some degree, we all live inconsistent with his name and his kingdom. So what are you going to do about that? Like I said, you make this your prayer and you should. The spirit will convict you. And the true believer then will have two responses. First, he or she will repent. You'll be moved to repent of any sin you see in your life, great or small. That just, that does not honor God's name. That does not reflect his reign. You'll be moved to just turn away from, from any wicked way in your life. Yeah. What do you know? Why, why do you think in just a few verses, the Lord will lead us to confess our sins regularly when we pray? Verse 12, forgive us our debts. It's part of our renewal. The Lord knows the spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. He wants us to be continually renewed recalibrated and look prayer it is exaltation but it's also one of the means of god's grace to renew us so as we pray in god's grace by the power of the spirit we pray hallowed be your name he actually in turn hallows us meaning he sets us apart he makes us a little bit more holy more like his son that continues in the second right response the believer will have You're convicted by the spirit of all the ways your life doesn't honor the name or submit to the reign of God. First, you'll repent. And second, you'll return. And that's just the other side of the coin here. These are, these always go together. You return. You return to God. You resolve to change your ways to, to bring more and more of your life into accord with his name and his kingdom. Like 1 Peter 3.15 says, you, you hallow or sanctify Jesus as Lord in your own life. We're not just calling him Lord by name, but, but by action. Or you don't just bear his name in title, but in deed. And, and in that God is, is exalted. That, that life that follows through with your confession, that is the worship that pleases God the most. When you actually live as if you have his name and you submit to his reign, that is the most pleasing worship to him. And so Jesus teaches us here how to pray. We've learned top of the list is adoration. I mean, he just, he forces our eyes heavenward that we would just stop and see God lofty, exalted. And we're just to praise him there as our hearts have been recalibrated to seek his name, his kingdom, his glory. And look, at the same time, by the power of his spirit, the Lord will renew us as we do that, that more and more of our lives would be yielded up to him in worship. It's not just our lips, but it's, it's our lives. And look, with all this in mind, should it surprise you to learn that just about every verse in the New Testament longing for Christ to return or for the kingdom to come is married to a call to holy living. Listen again, 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12. <clears throat> Talking about the end, he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? This blessed hope is a purifying hope if it's really yours. Also, Titus 2, 11 through 14. I read just a snippet of that. Listen to the whole thing. Titus 2, 11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And one day that purification he speaks of, it will be complete. He'll finish the purification of his people. We will be a people for his eternal possession, free from sin, Satan, and death forevermore. That will not be in this present age, but the next, which is why we long for it so much. But until then, we need to make this our pursuit, that we're people zealous, not for lawless deeds, but for good deeds. And we need to make this our prayer, that God's grace would appear, that God's grace would come. And ultimately, it was the grace of God appearing the first time that saved us. 
it will be the grace of God appearing the second time that glorifies us. And so let us learn to always exalt and adore our great God and Savior in prayer and in living, both now and forevermore. Let's do that together right now. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We, we aim to pray that it can be so easy just to mouth some words, but with meaning to come and stand before you and, and recall who you are, who is the God to whom we are speaking, the God who has revealed himself in creation, the, the almighty one who could make the vastness of this universe with a word, who made us, who stitched us together in our mother's wombs, who, who even called and, and chose us in Christ, the God who, who sent his son Christ to redeem us. We think of your works, we think of who you are, Lord, and we adore you. I pray you move in the hearts of, of all your people here that this, this becomes their prayer from hearts that have seen you, that have been called by you, that have bowed the knee to Christ. And we also pray for his kingdom to come. We pray to Jesus, come quickly. Because our, our hearts do groan within us. Even our own coldness groans within us like creation. We are not even still as we should be. This world is even still not as it should be. There's still so much wrong. We thank you that Christ has come the first, but we need him to come the second to finish the work he began and to, to conquer, to conquer every domain of darkness once for all, to bring in his perfect everlasting reign. We pray for him to come quickly. As we wait though, Lord, you've given us work to do uh, to evangelize, but we look to our own holiness. He wants to come back and see his bride wearing white. He wants us to be a people of, of holy conduct, zealous for good knees, uh, deeds, praising his name. So purify your people this morning. May this prayer, may this preaching purify us and to make us more like the one who called us. We just ask for your help, Lord. We are we're so fallen in so many ways and so insufficient in so many ways, but this is why we need you and why we give you the glory for all you do uh, for us to begin to continue to finish our salvation. So purify us in prayer. And it's all in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.